Hey everyone, Zach Dixon here, and welcome back to our 50th episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world of animation. Well, we're back from a brief hiatus. Sorry for the delay. I have been busy with our little one, Izzy, who is now six months old and doing really well. Um, we've also been working on releasing our first game as a studio, Bouncy Smash, uh, which we'll be announcing our release date for very soon. Uh, I'm pumped to be back in the studio, and it's hard to believe we've hit 50 episodes. Thanks so much to everyone who tunes in each week. Uh, today on the show, we have Wesley Slover, founder of Sono Sanctus, a music and sound design studio based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wes has worked with an incredible list of clients, including Microsoft, Amazon, Disney, and Facebook, to name a few. Uh, but he's also worked with tons of previous guests on Animal Eaters, including Oddfellows, Giant Ant, The Fro, Pep Rally, and tons more. Um, I've even had the pleasure of working with Wes and his team on a recent IV project for Circle CI, um, and it was awesome. Uh, today on the show, we'll talk about how Wes ran into a closed door in his career and eventually found a way past it. We'll talk about the process he uses when approaching audio on an animation project, and we'll talk a little bit about Wes's experience transitioning from full-time work to freelance to growing a business. I'm excited to get into all of this and more on this week's episode of Animalators. Wes, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah. Um, okay, so you are owner of Sono Sanctus. Um, we actually just had the pleasure of, of working together on a new project that Ivy Animation just put out, um, which was great. And I was like, we got to have him on the show. This would be great. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your studio. Where are you at right now? Yeah, so I, I work out of a home studio in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's like halfway between Chicago and Detroit. Um, and our model is, has been remote work. Uh, so we have my employees based in Seattle um, that I do work with other, uh, other people in other places as well. You used to be in Seattle, though, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Seattle and started out in Seattle. And, and part of it was that I realized, you know, even when I'd work for clients in town, I still wouldn't see them. I'd still be working out of my home studio. Um, so we were able to move out here for family reasons. And they give away houses in Michigan pretty much <laughs> compared to Seattle. So yeah. <laughs> that was kind of nice to have a little more space. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it, it does, I feel like, snow quite a bit more, though. It's a bit harsher up there in, in Michigan, no? It's very cold. <laughs> it's very cold. <laughs> I shoveled snow for the first time in my life when I moved here. Oh, no. Were you like, I've made a huge mistake, or it was, was it all right? No, I, you know, I like it. One of my buddies who, who did a similar thing, he moved up here for his wife's family and, you know, was working remotely. He said, you know, it really helps you don't have to leave the house much. And, it, you know, it's, it's kind of nice, like, really work, you know, being in the studio. Sometimes I'll open up the uh, acoustic blinds and, you know, see it snowing outside. It's really beautiful. And I, I like Grand Rapids a lot. It's a really great little city. Yeah, no, that's great. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your process and, and your work. I mean, you've worked with a bunch of incredible clients and studios, a lot of, um, animal eaters, alumni, if you will, um, like giant ant, the furrow, odd fellows, pepper alley, Sonder, um, Alan Lasseter, just crazy. Um, and we've had the pleasure of working with you like a couple weeks ago. So yeah, just if you could, for maybe a, a freelancer out there who hasn't worked with a sound designer before, um, could you just take us a little bit of how you kind of like to work with animators? Sure. The main thing is that I feel like as a sound design music studio, um, my job is to support 
the animation studio, the agency, you know, whoever's whoever's creating the video, like first and foremost. So that's always I can I'll lay out this is how I like to do it or how I suggest doing it, but like every project's different. We we'll always try to, you know, be as accommodating as possible because you know, an- honestly, animation is a lot harder than sound design and so we feel like we can in a, you know, be supportive in that way. Um, so ideally, if we're doing sound and music for a piece, I like to start talking about it, at least the creative, like once there are storyboards or style frames. Um, and usually from those, we can actually start making music um, because we get a sense for like, this is the aesthetic and the world that you're creating. And uh, so it gives a sense for the tone. And, and if we have the script, we can kind of block out, okay, this will be sort of the pacing of it. Um, this is where we might need like a emotional shift or whatever, like, oh, it's a problem solution piece. Cool. So we'll, we'll compose a demo that kind of captures those and we'll let it work it up later on as we go. Yeah. So with that, do you need like a picture lock or anything like that? Or do you just start, start going just from a script? For music, I like to have music done before there's picture lock, but have all the pieces so that we can finish the arrangement once there's picture lock. With sound design, ideally, we'll start when there's like 15 seconds of animation done. And we treat that as a style, like how you would treat a style frame. That's like, okay, this is early in the process. Like, we're not going to be to picture lock for like a couple weeks or whatever. So, like, we have the time for the back and forth if we need it. And we'll do a demo of like, this is how we feel like your piece should sound. Uh, This is the sense we get. Send it back, do some revisions, and then really focus in on that before moving on to anything else. Because usually once you get that, then we kind of know what creative decisions to make um, when executing the rest of the of the piece. And then ideally it would have like a couple days after picture lock just to make sure that, you know, we can finish everything, we can get the mix sounding good, we have time for revisions and all that. Um, the schedules are always weird. <laughs> I feel like, the, you know, we usually have like the least amount of control in, in any schedule. <laughs> yep, case in point, working with us like a few weeks ago. You know, though, honestly, I kind of love those jobs where a client's like, hey, we've got a piece. Could you sound design this tomorrow? And we can just do it, you know, to the best of our ability and like crank it out. I, I kind of love those as well, um, assuming we have time. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> you know, we don't have like too many other projects booked. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's literally what we did to you guys. We were like, just with the way that the the schedule worked. You know, we, we just didn't have a lot of time for it. We just needed it turned around uh, really quickly. We, we came to y'all and, and you guys knocked it out of the park and it, it was a great experience. But yeah, I apologize for the, the short turn, turnaround still. Um, I'm surprised to hear that you, you like that. But I, I guess I get that, right? Like you got a short turnaround and, and whatever you can come up with is what it is. And there's no revisions after that and you're just done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, no, definitely. So with that process, do you, I'm curious if you ever find yourself like pitching or, or ever, you know, a client has ever come to you and say like, you know, we want five options for this or something like that. It really depends on the budget. Yeah. Um, usually what we do, so we, I have a library of about, I don't know, 300, 350 tracks. Oh, wow. And so we usually start by pitching stuff from our own library. Um, and it's great because that way it's like, when I quote, it's like, if you want to just license something from the library, this is it. If you want original. But they always have the chance to like, well, we could start with the library. And that's really helpful because if they like something but just want some things changed about it, like how you might use a, a different reference track from you know an artist or, or whatever, it's great because we can literally lift stuff from it if we want to. Or like, I mean, that's everything in a track in my tracks is very much in our wheelhouse. And we don't have to worry about 
oh, can we pull this off? Or, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward from that point. Um, so a lot of times I'll pitch, you know, five, 10 tracks from our library just to like get the ball rolling. And that helps a lot. So you mentioned reference tracks. I'm curious what you, what you think about that. Do you mind when a, when a studio comes to you with a reference track? I like if a studio comes to me with like three reference tracks. Because if someone comes to me and they says, hey, you know, th- describe sort of what they want the music to accomplish. And they send me a few different pieces of music and they go, oh, we really like the, I don't know, digital vibe of this song. And we like the en- the, the basic pacing and feel of this one. That way, it's not like, okay, here's this like perfect standard that we want you to do the same. We want something like this, but different, you know, like that's, that's the worst. And it's <laughs> yeah. terrible when... Yeah. When it's something like a Radiohead song. Oh, no. And you're yeah, like, we yeah. can't do Karma Police. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know. <laughs> this might be one of the greatest songs ever. You know, could you make us one of those, yeah, please? You are going to be disappointed. And it's really hard with like, uh, you know, super popular like EDM tracks. Oh, because, yeah. you know, those tracks show up because they of the like 30s tracks that didn't make the cut, you know? <laughs> it's like, there's not like this perfect science to like this really like catchy track. Part of it is that, you know, when you're when an artist is making an album, they're writing a lot of stuff that doesn't get used. The reason why I brought up reference tracks is because like, I, I feel like they have, they have ruined me um, it, it, on some projects and I just like, I can't use them anymore because I just, I get that kind of, I get attached to them and then I can't hear anything else. And I, I, I don't know. I just feel like it makes it really difficult to like, um, hear whatever a composer comes up with. And so, yeah, I just like, I, I personally really just don't like reference tracks. So I was curious, um, because I, I think they may, they've made me a bad client in the past. I mean, they're really helpful as like literally just a reference, but they get when that, de- that demo love sets in when you've been editing to this song for so long and your client has gotten used to it that gets really tough for everybody which is why we like to try to get some of our library stuff out there early on so let's talk a little bit about that library how long have you been building that music library um i guess like six years or something that's really like since I, i i mean there's tracks in my library from eight years ago you know when i was making music in my spare time but those aren't really that useful for most client projects um, because that was just when I was making weird electronic music, <laughs> not, you know, not doing stuff that, that was meant for clients. Okay. So many, so many questions about this. Do you like sell them on music bed or anything like that? Or do you just keep them as your own kind of, you know, you're going to come to me and I'm going to try and find a few tracks for you that I like. So both. Um, so I'm represented by Marmoset. Um, they're a, a really great music house in Portland. I highly recommend them. They have great customer service and a great library. And then I also have the, the library on our site. I'd say most of our deals are more like direct. Somebody comes to me and they want to mix and maybe they want to license music or, you know, like I said, maybe we're doing original music, but we pitch stuff from the library. Very cool. So these almost seem like little, you know, personal projects. How do you, do you just kind of create specific time in your schedule to, to make new tracks? Yeah, well, most of the time when we're doing original music, we're doing it non-exclusively. So we say after this project, like this track's going to end up in our library, basically. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the tracks are from other projects. Um, And then I definitely do a lot in my spare time. Something right now, especially with, we'll probably talk about it later with like staffing up and and all that, is that I want to be more proactive about projects and less reactive. So I find like the interesting music that I make is more often stuff that I make with a little bit of a, 
a goal in mind, but I don't necessarily have like all these client or design considerations to make. The projects that I want us to do as a company, I try to just make that music on my own and then have it so I can pitch it on projects or somebody hears it and they're like, ah, this would be great for my documentary or whatever that is. Usually the those projects are really small, like just kind of quick. Like I just released a dozen beats that are, you know, making like three hours each or, or whatever, just kind of goofing around. But I, I am finishing a project right now that I'm really excited about called Poverty Island. And it's been it's like a year and a half in the works now. It's it's a disaster, <laughs> but getting close. Um, and the, the concept for that was it started as a joke. My buddy was out here to record some like googly music. And we were at the bar and just talking about like, oh, it'd be awesome to do like this like fake documentary album. And then it like that became like our whole a whole project. Um, so the concept with that is it's like a mock a faux score for a documentary about Poverty Island. It's this little island in Lake Michigan that's historically there's been like tons of shipwrecks there. Um, there's like a single lighthouse. It's really, really small. And so the way that I've approached the project is using that sort of as a muse. But then as if the director came to me, I was like, hey, we're making this documentary, but we're not going to have time to actually score it. Can you like give me a toolkit of what I'd need to like edit and like make the film? Because it's really important with stock tracks that you're making decisions that make it easy for editors to work with. You know, there's a lot of people that will go, oh, I make like a pretend film score or whatever. But it's like, oh, you can't actually like edit with that because it doesn't have the kind of arcs that you need and, and whatever. Um, so with this project, we're doing that. There's like an album piece to it, but we're also doing alter alternate versions. So we've got like very minimal versions. We have like some that are take the same song, but make it kind of peppy. Just trying different ways of like anticipating what people might need. So like when a client a lot of times when I'm making music now, I think in terms of, okay, what might the editor say about this that they want different? Like, oh, it's great, but could it go somewhere? <laughs> or, oh, it's great, but could it not be so depressing? You know, whatever. That's uh, You actually just brought up an interesting thing that I found can be very difficult when, when working with audio is like describing what I want to be different about a project. I don't know. I just feel like those adjectives can be very like difficult to communicate sometimes, especially if, if you're not maybe so familiar with music. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really hard. Like even as somebody who works in audio all the time, I think talking about sound is really difficult. I think more recently, I feel like I've started to get a better handle on it, but trying to talk through more of like, what are like just your like design goals with this? Or like, what, like, what do you want it to feel like? Um, and not try to get like too specific. Um, I've gotten a little bit better, I think, w through experience of going, ah, oh, this is how something could be smoother. This is how something could be, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of times it's explaining like, w you know, as a director, explaining why you want it to be different. So it helps if it's like, not just, oh, we want this to be smoother. It's like, we want this to be smoother because this voiceover is really complicated. And we want to make sure that it's really clear to hear or like our client is really worried about people not understanding the voiceover because then I can go ah okay now I can make decisions that are going to achieve that goal that we didn't realize that we had in the first place now I think you just hit on something like really important I think for any client feedback is like if you don't understand the reason for like their specific like you know we really want this to be read I mean there's not always a reason for that but like I feel like it it maybe gives us the tools to think of something better than you know, maybe more effective for actually the reason that they're, you know, bringing forward this specific piece of feedback. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was first starting out, I had a designer friend and he said like, you know, you can do work that's like doing what your client asks for, but you can do work that is giving your client what they would ask for if they understood your craft. Mm, I love so it's that. like, in a way, it's kind of like empowering directors, empowering clients to be a part of making music, be a part of making sound without them feeling like they have to tell me what to do, but feeling like this is my, that they own it, that it's their thing, that like the reason I made those choices is because I was making those choices on their behalf. That's not to say like, oh, well, client, you know, get out of the way. Like, I'm going to tell you what you want. Um, but it's more of like trying to understand what the client is trying to do and why they might like something and then making the best decisions, you know, with the extra experience and knowledge that I have. Yeah. Well, especially since you, I mean, if you can get in at pre-production and and kind of understand, I don't know, the core, like essentially of like the script and and where they're starting from, I think feel like that sets you up to be able to do that really well as well. Yeah, I think so. And we have the time to do it too. When you start that early, you have there's time um, because you know animation takes way longer than sound design. So if I can kind of do, if we can handle some of those things, like while the animators are grinding out, you know, all this, all these shots, like it's nice because it doesn't feel rushed. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, let's kind of jump back in time and and talk a little bit about kind of your origins. Um, I understand you uh, went and, and spent some time at the Conservatory of Recording Sciences. Is that correct? Uh, Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. Oh, arts and Sciences. All right. So or CRASS for short. <laughs> what a great acronym. Yeah. So tell me about your time there. I guess first, why did you go there? Why did you choose to, to go to school for this? Yeah. So I was like a huge band geek growing up. I just loved playing music like any way that I could grow up playing trumpet and then realized that I really liked making stuff. I was less interested in like becoming a trumpet performer teacher and more interested in like making albums. And so at the time I wanted to be like the next Phil Eck and make, you know, modest mouse records or whatever as a producer. Um, and so I went to the school it was, it's just an audio engineering school. So it's eight months you eat, sleep, breathe audio. It, it was pretty awesome. Like my classes started at three in the afternoon and then after school, there would be midterm or final projects going on. So there were people in the studio all the time. So we'd hang out at the school after hours. And then if you wanted to, you could book time, like if, if any studios were available, like late at night. So there were times we'd go at like three in the morning because it was the only time the studio was available and we'd go record something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we didn't like make good work, but it was just like such an awesome opportunity to have access to these studios all the time and have a bunch of other geeks around who just wanted to to work on stuff. Do you feel like you were able to kind of make the most of your time there? Absolutely. I, I feel like it was a really good use of time for, for a handful of reasons. I mean, like one is the cost that it was a lot cheaper than going to a four-year school. The other was that I I didn't have to work while I was in school. I was really grateful to my parents for that, for, for providing that for me. And so I... I just spent as much time at school as I could. And since I was only there for eight months, it's like I didn't have other friends. I didn't have anything else to do. Like it was in Mesa, Arizona. Like I don't really like Mesa, Arizona. No offense to um, all the Phoenix listeners. Out. And uh, I mean, the Phoenix listeners out here probably don't like Mesa either. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a Seattle kid. I like the the damp weather <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trees, yeah. you know. But uh, yeah, so like it was really, it was, it was a great use of time. And what I, I liked about my school compared to a lot of other schools is their whole thing is they just want to like break you down. So like 
<laughs> you you get get to school and they're like, uh, okay, here's the deal. Like, you are not entitled to anything. Like, you are gonna finish the school. You're not gonna know crap. You are gonna probably go scrub toilets at some studio somewhere. And uh, a lot of you won't have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> like that was their thing, and. I think it was like the best start because, you know, if I was paying 50 grand a year or whatever, like I feel like I'm entitled to something. But the fact is like, at least in that field, like especially like recording bands and stuff, it's just like it's so competitive. It's like you can't have an attitude at all. And they made sure that you came out of school not having attitude, but they made sure you come out of school with a really solid base knowledge and that you could learn in the in the field. At the time, if I thought, oh, you're going to have to go freelance if you want to make a living doing sound, I probably would have been like, no, I can't do that. It's too scary. I'm going to go be an accountant or whatever. But I think it prepared me for that uh, kind of hustle and kind of attitude coming out of school. So coming out of that program, what was what was your goal at that point? Like, what were you looking for? Well, yeah. So like I went to school wanting to make albums. This was like 2005. And then quickly realized, oh, you can't like make a living doing that. <laughs> it was like right <laughs> after the, you know, the music industry was just like in shambles. But then we did a sound design course and I had been kind of like making experimental electronic music and reason and stuff. And I was like, oh, like sound is a job. <laughs> like I, I could just make sounds like this is really cool. And it felt like a real job too. Like when I went into school, I, I didn't want to, I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to try to make a living making music that's way too competitive. Like I, I should have like a real job, like being an audio engineer or like, you know, whatever. To me, it like kind of scratched both those itches. Like it felt enough like a real job uh, that I could actually make it. And then was also really interesting. Uh, so I wanted to go back to Seattle and, and like game audio was really like the big industry out there. And I love video games and making stuff. So it seemed like kind of a perfect fit uh, come out of school. So uh, the end of our school, like you would do a two or three month unpaid internship somewhere. Um, and so that's where I, I went back to Seattle to do my internship. Okay, very cool. Who, who is that with? So it was with uh, Matthew Lee Johnston. He's, um, he had been the audio director at Microsoft Game Studios. This was like Xbox era. Yeah. Uh, wow, so we did cool. like, did some really cool stuff. Like he did Fables, you know, back then, like having film composers do games was not a thing. Um, and he convinced them to have Danny Elfman compose the like intro music. Yeah. And like, you know, so like he, he'd done some things that were kind of like trying to take like game audio and music to the next level. Yeah. That's incredible. But the, the internship was really interesting because it was, so he had quit and was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And so I would go to his house, um, and like, he was great because when we first were talking about it, he's like, look, I'm not like a company or whatever, but like, if this is something that can be mutually beneficial, like, let's do it. Um, and so like, my first one of my big project there was going through all his old recordings that he did for Flight Simulator and take and uh, ripping them from dat tapes and like tagging them for a, a library. And he'd be like, playing the new Xbox 360 downstairs, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> like <laughs> checking it out. Um, but it was cool because he like he kind of burned out on game audio. So like as somebody coming out of school, it's like you're all bright eyed and bushy tailed. And it was super helpful to get this perspective of like, well, you know, here's the thing in audio, kid. Like you basically there's a there's a limit, and then there's nothing like new to do really. Like being the audio director at Microsoft Game Studios is like the top of the industry. Yeah. Um, and he wanted he wanted to do different stuff. He didn't want to just be known as like the sound guy. He wanted to be into game design and everything. And he was really interested in just like 
different ways of using sound. So he turned me on to like UI sound where like we'd go out for lunch and, you know, he got, he got in this car that he was, he, he was like renting it or something. Cause his car was in the shop and he's like, Oh, this ding sound. It's like, why is it? So, you know, like this, they should have done this better. And I was like, Oh, Hey, that's a, that, that's a really good point. Um, and then we get to the restaurant and he's like, man, instead of this, like, you know, radio, whatever pop radio station, wouldn't it be cool if like in the fish tanks, they had like contact microphones and they like <laughs> pump that back out in. And it's like this kind of like feedback loop of like this ambient sort of music. <laughs> and it got me thinking about that kind of stuff of like, oh, like sound doesn't have to be just be, oh, this is sounds for a video game. Like you shoot a gun in a video game and it makes a sound. It's like sound is like in our lives and anytime you hear something like somebody made a decision about that and if people are interested in that i highly recommend uh 20,000 hertz yeah. podcast yes. i don't know if i'm allowed to recommend other podcasts no, on your do. podcast they have the best stories like try that kind of talk about those things and get people excited about sound in general so that was the kind of stuff that i started getting my mind opened up to um and it was cool as later on he actually uh became a producer at popcap games like just a producer, not an audio guy. So he really did like move on and like kind of break out of what, what he was doing. And that's so that's he really got me thinking like a designer because I went to an audio engineering school that was like for audio engineers, you know, people who like record stuff. And they we did a little bit of sound designing as part of that. But we weren't trained to be designers, weren't trained to think like designers. We were trained to like, hey, this band is making a record, like make it sound great. So you've kind of finished up this internship what was next for you so next was trying to figure out how to get in the door someplace because you know matt it couldn't offer me a job because he didn't have a company <laughs> or yeah, i mean he had a company that wasn't doing anything really trying to figure out what he wanted to do um and so i reached out to just like a ton of game studios and just could, didn't hear back from anybody and this was before yeah i feel like it'd be really different now because this was before there was like twitter hashtag game audio and like game audio meetups and stuff um, so I just literally like didn't know how in the world to like get a job. And so I was a night janitor for the Seattle Sonics, actually, basketball fans. Really? Nice. Um, <laughs> and then I also worked at a movie theater because my, my family owned a, a movie theater growing up. So I actually, it was kind of depressing because I, I was like running a movie theater. Yeah. And I was a projectionist <laughs> and managed everything. And then um, after school, I was like bottom of the totem pole scooping popcorn at a movie theater. Uh, they wouldn't even let me sell tickets in the ticket booth yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think I was kind of raised to not feel like entitled to things like, you know, having a cool job or whatever. Um, I'm really grateful for that. Like, I think it's easy to get really discouraged, but I just kind of saw it as like, well, I spent eight months in school. Like, of course, I don't have a job yet, you know, like and and part of the way that I th I thought of doing the tech school thing that was shorter was like, okay, I'm still going to take four years of my life to like try to like learn this craft. I'm just going to do eight months of it in school and a few months of it as an intern and then just like keep working on stuff and and, and hustling after that. But I did finally get like a realish job. Um, I got a, a job at a, at a church as an engineer there. So I, I did all kinds of different stuff. Like originally I was the, the cassette tape ministries guy. Um, I literally made cassette tapes of sermons for people and mailed them. Like the, the pastor there is like well known, but like has a, you know, pretty an older audience. So like literally I was like duplicating cassette tapes, but I, you know, I got like their podcasting stuff up and running and tried to like make improvements and try to go, okay, how, you know, I, I'm the sound guy to church. How do we use the medium to like 
to help what the organization's doing. It helped, you know, 65-year-olds learn how, about podcasting. It was pretty awesome. Like, yeah. He's like, wait, so you're saying I can have all of the sermons <laughs> on this thing that's smaller than a cassette tape? I'm like, yes, that's what I'm saying. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, that was actually a really great experience working there because it was, it was big, and so we had a lot of resources, and we had a high standard for like th- the work that we did. And I worked with really great engineers, so I learned a lot from them. Um, and work with great musicians there too, who you know, who are good friends, and you know, still collaborate with a lot of those people. Um, like when I need tracks for thing or or whatever. Do you feel like those skills that you picked up doing live sound translated a lot to what you do now? Yeah, yeah. Two reasons that I I think of just off the top of my head. One, getting it right the first time. You know, doing the studio thing. At least as a student. I kind of felt like, oh, you know, like you can like keep tweaking stuff and you can, you know, you have like all this time to to, to do whatever. Oh, yeah. Where it's like live sound. It's like, okay, we've got this much time <laughs> to set up, like we get this much time to sound check and then we like run the service and then we're done. And so it, it really taught me to just like be content, like doing it once, <laughs> you know, and uh, and trying to have ways, it, it just like to be be efficient. And not that those things don't exist in studios or whatever, but for me, I had only done projects on my own. I, I wasn't like, you know, at a studio that was billing by the hour or anything. So I never had that kind of uh, urgency uh, before. Um, and the other thing was being comfortable with sort of doing things wrong. <laughs> so like, you know, the way that we would use EQs or like what I learned in school is like, oh, you can't do that. That's way too extreme. And we'd be like, no, like this is what's going to make this work is to like be really ha- ham fisted with whatever technique we're using. Um, and that's been super helpful in sound design because I mean, a lot of the stuff we do is like weird or abstract. So it, it just like, it's like, don't be afraid to push things too far. Don't be afraid to, you know, if it's the right way to do it or not, like if, as long as it's not causing problems for you and it sounds good, like go for it. That's interesting. Cause I feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of a, a correlation between, you know, animation and, and, and sound design. I'm just curious if you think about this at all. I feel like a lot of times we, we s- try and mask the use of like what tools that we're using. Like nobody wants to like look at your animation and be like, oh, he just used like a preset on particular or something like that, like a particle plugin. Like do you ever have that same thought in on the audio side? Like you don't want your tools to be like that necessarily recognizable to kind of help you maybe stand out a little bit from your peers? I actually, for me, I think it's the opposite. It's only for certain certain types of projects or whatever. But like, if somebody wants like cinematic science fiction orchestral music, I want it to sound like all the other stuff. So I want to have the same libraries and tools that the other guys have, because you know, because a lot of times it's like what I'm doing, primarily working more like in advertising and stuff. It's like we are riffing off of the zeit, you know, the cultural zeitgeist or whatever. Um, where like we don't want this to be like the next arrival soundtrack <laughs> yeah, that's mind blowing. Yeah. We want it to be the last arrival soundtrack <laughs> that blew people's minds and like you know is like now part of the culture. Not to say that I want to like rip things off or make it sound exactly the same, but like there is a certain sort of expectation of ah this genre like this is what builds the world. Like these types of sounds build the world. Although I feel like we have a lot less 
tools than animators probably, especially when you get into like 3D with, you know, whatever kind of renders or whatever you guys do. I don't really know what's going on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't even get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all, I mean, there's so much stuff that they're, they all kind of do the same things or like they're all, you know, a lot of tools. It's like, oh, it's this synth sound, but it's a synth from the eighties, you know, that's been around forever. <laughs> so it's not, not like super, uh, next level. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about your transition then, um, from, from live sound at a church, uh, into freelance work. Yeah. So I had done a, a lot. I basically did as much, many little like weird side projects on the side as I could. Something that was great at, at being at the church, they had a recording studio and I was allowed to use it like whenever it wasn't getting used for other things. So like I'd done like a sci-fi B movie <laughs> and you know just kind of worked on a, albums and kind of just whatever. But where I think it really shifted is um, a friend who's a, a director. He's a freak. He's one of those guys that kind of do everything. You know, he can shoot, he can edit, he can animate. It's really awesome. Um, but he he introduced me to Jordan Scott, who he was on the podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, yep, definitely. Or Jay Dash Scott, as some know him on the internet. <laughs> it's true. Where Jordan had done an animation for his wife's baking blog. And my friend David was like, hey, you should just call up Wes to sound design this. He's trying to like, you know, learn more or whatever. And so um, I spent like a weekend working on that with Jordan. It was great. He gave me like great notes on it. And then um, I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is exciting. Like I haven't really, it's kind of, I like that I can sort of do musical things and I can have sound effects and it's short. So like we can finish it and move on. Cause I had just done the like feature length sci-fi B movie. <laughs> I ate up way too much of my life uh, with very little to show for it, you know? <laughs> um, and then Jordan posted it to Vimeo and it started getting a lot of traction. And that's where I was like, oh, like animation, motion graphics is a thing. Like there's a community out here. There are people commenting about this. Like there's a lot of other people like Jordan out there doing the same kind of stuff. And that to me is like where I saw it kind of clicked and I saw like an actual career path kind of pop up. He posted that to Vimeo and then I just started reaching out to people who commented about the sound or who, who liked it. Like I'd go check out their pages, kind of see if we were on the sort of same level. Like, I didn't want to reach out to people who are, like, legendary in the industry or whatever, because that's just obnoxious, you know, to get, <laughs> hey, you want to collab, you want to hire me or collaborate or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I would reach out to people and go, hey, if you're doing test animations, like, let me know. I'd love to make sound for it. Or I'd see something on their site, and I was like, oh, this thing's cool, but it doesn't have any sound. Do you want, do you want me to make sound for it? Could I do that? Is that Okay. And the response was really great. I think people were super excited about that because it's you know it's like somebody taking notice of their of their own projects and like oh cool we're like collaborating we're making something that's that's bigger than you know what either of us would do on our own. So I kept doing that. That you know I would do somebody's test animation, then I would follow up with people who liked it or commented about the sound, um, and just keep going from there because that way there's sort of like a touch point. Like oh, you've seen some of my work. I know you liked it. So maybe you'd like to work with me kind of a thing rather than just like out of the blue uh, cold emailing or whatever you'd call it. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's kind of like in direct contrast to, you know, right after you finish your internship, sending out a bunch of emails to, you know, a bunch of different game studios and like crickets, right? And then, and then now here you are, you know, a few years later, what, what would you say was kind of the main difference between, you know, those two experiences? Well, 
one difference was that I had gained a lot of skills by working at the church by doing side projects. Even though I hadn't done sound for animation, I had a lot more practice in Pro Tools. I had a lot more practice making electronic music. And that was really valuable because I think it made it uh, possible for me to work a lot faster and grow a lot quicker than I would have if I had those opportunities when I first started. Um, and then I also, I think I kind of made you know less mistakes too. Like I, I delivered better work um, than if I had done it like right when I was at school. I, I think though the big difference was that it was there's a community that I could tap into, that I could be a part of, that I could always find stuff to work on. Before it was like, I don't know who to talk to. I can look up like, what are game studios in Seattle? But like, you know, jobs with them are few and far between. The other difference is now, I mean, there's like Twitter and Instagram and Vimeo are all like, there there's so many communities that are really accessible, especially for video game audio. Like the video game audio community is amazing. People are so generous with their... I, I say they're on par with the motion graphics industry. Wow. And actually, honestly, like I think that that yeah, it's big words, big words. But <laughs> I, I think that it's it's pretty similar though. The sense of like a rising tide lifts all boats. Like we are happy to help people. We want to make the industry better. We want to be aware of like you know diversity in our industry and like not be jerks. And we want to provide opportunities for people to like show their stuff. You know. Um, community projects, all that kind of stuff. I've had this same exact experience as I've been venturing more into the game dev world. It's just so helpful. Like the community is incredible. Um, so watch out, motion design industry. No, I'm just kidding. I love you. All. No, I mean you, they need each other. No, for real. <laughs> There's so much to learn across across the pond from each other. Um, yeah, seriously. Well, and I mean, I hopefully there's going to be more and more crossover. I mean, we're seeing it. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. No, I'm I'm excited for that that future we should talk about games at some point on here if that works for you yes you're we, i think we both are kind of getting into games <laughs> the same way of like through this weird side door yeah we are that makes for really interesting games and in, you know because it's like you come at it from this like oh we like animations you know and animations are a big part of games anyway we, yeah if you want to circle back to that yeah no i mean let's let's go there now and then circle back to this other stuff so are you working on a, a lot of game stuff right now i'm working on a few games um i still want to make games but I don't think I want to make my full living making games, if that makes sense. Like, the games that I'm most interested in are kind of interesting, small indie games that just are not going to, you know, buy my family health insurance and <laughs> pay the mortgage and all of that. Um, so I I do a handful of work with this uh, board game studio called Level 99 Games. And I got in touch with them because I was just a fan of their board games and had done a, I just did a piece of music for a guy who was making like video content, like of how to play the game better, basically. And then the the owner of the company reached out and was like, hey, we're doing an online version of this game. Do you want to do music for it? And I was like, yeah, I want to make music for this board game. And and I'll, I guess I got to interject to you, like I... I, lo I really like video games, but I don't play a lot of video games because I spend my whole day alone in my studio looking at a screen, right? But I love board games. Me too, and man. Card games. Oh, man. What's your favorite game right now? Favorite board game? Like, if you, if you could play any board game tonight, what would it be? The game I'm most excited about right now, I think games for different contexts are really important. But of course. I think what I'm most impressed with is the Arkham Horror LCG. Oh, okay. Have you heard of that? I have not. So... 
this it's a cooperative is it a legacy game. game oh it's by fantasy flight yes that's incredible i, I love okay. fantasy flight stuff um yeah me too so it's a cooperative game where each player plays like an investigator in this like hp lovecraft sort of world and you play through scenarios and it's like serialized so you get you buy packs and it's like another like you sit down and you play through it and the story continues what I love about it, I mean, the art is incredible, but like what I get most excited about with video games or with, with board games is like a sense of discovery and like exper- experimenting and like doing stuff and seeing what happens rather than like the super calculated kind of games, like more like Euro style games. And I love games where they use mechanics that are really evocative. So like through just some cards that I play down, it sort of tells a story of like, Oh, this monster just like broke through the door. Luckily, I had like a stray cat with me. And so I could duck out and it got distracted by the cat. (laughs) And then I came up and like hit the monster while it was distracted or I escaped or whatever. That like all that happens through like a few cards on the table is really impressive and interesting to me they they did an incredible job of like of that sweet um in arkham horror you've sold me i gotta i gotta get this oh man it's so good oh you're the, you're the second uh second client i've got going on really? Arkham Horror. <laughs> that's awesome wait i'm gonna i'm gonna interject now with, with my current my current go-to uh the staff got me for christmas a game called captain sonar oh is that the one where each player sort of does different parts of it yeah so uh, you, there's two teams and you can play up to eight players and it's like an adult version of battleship and everybody is a has a crew position on a submarine and and it's super fun you're trying to sink the other the other team you don't know where they are like one person's job is trying to figure out where they are but anyways if you have eight people you can actually play the game in real time and you don't take turns you just go as fast as you can go and it's just a great party game um for like you know people who are kind of into board games, but they don't have to be like mega into them. So yeah, that's like the opposite of uh, Arkham horror. Yeah. But like I said, I think like context for games is perfect. I love like sort of curating, like what game are we going to, what's right for this group of Me people too, or man. for the amount of time we have or whatever. Yeah. You got to have all the, all the options. Cause you know, cause you're hanging out with your, with your regular group, but then they, you know, they bring, they bring along a couple friends or maybe their, their spouse or something. And they're not that into games, but you got to have the right option. Takedo is good for that one. You just sell them on, like, this yeah, game is, like, have, have the best vacation you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's so great. The thing that's great about Arkham Horror is it's two-player. So, like, I just have a buddy over. We, like, pour some bourbon and just play it. We don't have to get, like, a whole big group together. That's great. But anyway, okay. So, yes. okay, so I'm working on um, <laughs> on uh, BattleCon Online, which, it's funny, I, it's, like, full circle. So it's a video game version of a card game that was inspired by fighting video games. Wow. So it's like Street Fighter, the board game, but now you can play it online. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's fun because I can draw influence from like fighting games, but also adapt it to this like turn-based, more like contemplative kind of style. And then we're doing another one with them. It's called Pixel Tactics. It's like uh, Final Fantasy Tactics card game, basically. Um, it's a really great game. Uh, so those are really fun, like passion projects. They, you know, pay like next to nothing, but like it got into this because I want to make cool stuff, not because I want to like get rich making video games, you know, I think with a lot of games, it's sort of like, I don't want to work on like this first person shooter for a year of my life that like, I don't like that. I don't necessarily feel good about like, and it's like, I might as well like work on like some commercials and then make as much money and then literally just like approach the studio that's 
otherwise couldn't afford me and go, no, let's do it. Like, let's like deck this thing out to the nines. Let's make it sound as good as possible um, because it's fun, <laughs> you know, and I'm excited about what we're doing. Um, and then we also do, so those are some like kind of ongoing indie games. Um, we also have some like more like client kind of games that I really like. Uh, I don't know how much I can say about one, but it's like an educational game um, with really beautiful uh, I was actually brought on uh, through a motion graphics studio. So like really great animations. I got to write kids songs for it, um, which is really cool. We're doing all the sound design for that. Um, is it coming out on switch by any chance? Uh, it's probably just, it's just gonna be like tablets. It's primarily an educational tool. Like it's being uh, funded by a nonprofit. It's with a uh, IDEO. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Design studio. They're, yeah, we've oh them. my gosh, they're incredible. <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, they're like I've done a lot of interactive projects but they're like next level and sort of the, the they think through things th- in a lot of depth it seems like and I mean it makes it they're incredible you know have a great reputation and everything so that's been a huge privilege to to work on that that's awesome have you ever concepted kind of have you ever thought about I don't know branching out from from audio and sound design and and heading up your own own projects or do you think you'll you'll stick kind of in that that audio space I think I'd stick in the audio space, but I'm really interested in figuring out ways that audio can inform other parts of the design. You know, because so often it's like, okay, here's an animation. It needs to have sounds. And a lot of times that's that's actually the right way to approach it. You know, like if there's a voiceover, like you probably shouldn't make your sound design like super crucial to the like overall concept of it because it's going to draw from the person who's just talking and clearly communicating what needs to get communicated, right? Um, But I think with games, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with sound that sort of take things off of the screen and communicate with people. And same with apps, too. But it's trickier with apps because you kind of have to assume that somebody doesn't have headphones with them. Um, Like, you kind of can't assume... And I'm, I'm, I'm going on a tangent right now. But uh, so basically, no, but I want to have more involvement. Like, I don't want to go, hey, this is my idea for a game. Let's make it happen. I want to come alongside somebody who says, hey, I've got this idea for a game. Let's make it happen. And then I can kind of bring to the table what, whatever it is. It would be interesting to contribute things that aren't specifically audio of like, hey, what if this was red <laughs> to go back <laughs> yep. to your earlier no, comment. Really. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, just sort of like, I really like, especially board game, like mechanics and design, I think is super interesting. So I do like to kind of contribute to that if I can. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So let's, let's jump back to where we were before and let's talk about your jump to full-time freelance. Um, like what was your headspace like at that point? You've been working at this, this church for, for five years. How did you decide to make that jump? I'm basically uh, needed more money. <laughs> I, at, I was at a point where it was just like, so my wife was pregnant with our daughter and we had been kind of moving toward toward freelance or something. It's just like, I just couldn't get a job anywhere that was going to pay more. And so it was kind of this point, I was like, freelance kind of seems like it. Like I didn't go to a real college, right? Going back to what we were talking about earlier, why it was great for audio, but you know, I couldn't just like get a job at Amazon or, or whatever in Seattle. So I started freelancing three months before my daughter was born. <laughs> oh, no. I, I don't recommend this. <laughs> um, it was really fortunate to have, you know, support from, like, financial support from my family that made it feasible. Um, I don't want to, like, downplay that at all. I think, like, I don't think I'd be where I am right now if it wasn't for 
some help when I was first starting out. But it was a lot of what I was describing earlier of reaching out to people on Vimeo and just doing tons and tons of collaborations, just spending as much time as I could on that kind of stuff. And so was this post going freelance where you were doing these these collaborations or was this kind of like as you were kind of weaning out of your job? I was doing it as I was weaning out of my job. And the nice thing was my boss was like, hey, if you can get your work done in 30 hours, like it's fine if you work 30 hours instead of 40. So I was able to kind of like taper off my work. And it was in the summers, it slowed down there. So I was able to kind of have a have a nice like transition in, a, in that sense. So it's, yeah, basically just continuing what I was already doing. Because I realized I was at the point where you know, if you're not available during the daytime, you can only do so much. Like client schedules are so quick, like the turnarounds and like feedback and everything. Like you just have to be available for projects. What I realized pretty quickly though with with audio freelance is like you need a lot of jobs to get by. Because, you know, for an animator, you're get booking a job, you know, it's, I don't know, it's like two weeks or something like that. For me, that two-week job is one day. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I realized pretty quickly of like, oh, geez, I need to have a lot of stuff to do. But, you know, on the other hand, it's like I really wasn't making very much money. So to get back to the same level, it wasn't like I wasn't making a lot of money before. I mean, so it was also felt attainable. Like, yeah, I could I could do that. And had you kind of already had a decent like library of music at this point? No. And what's funny is at the time I wasn't really planning on doing much music. I still was under the mindset of like, it's like too competitive to like make money making music. So that's what everybody wants to do. But sound design's a real job. Like not every like kid with a guitar like wants to be a sound designer. But it, it was something from my internship that my that Matt had told me. He said, you know, if you get really good at audio and engineering and sound design, people are going to ask you to make music. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so that's when I started getting into doing music uh, that was geared toward clients and, and that kind of stuff. I think if if I was to give advice, if there for whatever reason there's a sound designer listening to this, <laughs> oh, yeah. or a composer of like when you're starting out, like build a library, not even necessarily for the financial income from it, which the passive income is incredible if you can get it, but just to have a really large body of work you can show people because it makes projects happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. There's so many times people would come to me about. Or even still, like they'll come to me about doing sound design. I'm like, oh, do you want to license something from our library as well? Here, here's some tracks that might fit your project, you know. And they're like, oh, I don't have to go like dig around on, on a you know Audio Jungle. I hate doing <laughs> that's that. Pretty yeah. appealing. Yeah, it is appealing. <laughs> so that's a bit of a tangent. But basically, I was, I would have been a lot more prepared if I knew what I know now when back then. <laughs> so let's jump ahead a little bit. So that was 2012. Freelancing, and I and I know you know, you've hired contractors, but I, I you you've kind of hit a, a milestone fairly recently of of hiring um, Trevor Richardson, um, who actually did a lot of work on on the Circle CI piece we just put out. He did all that. I was up front with you guys. I said I I'm on vacation. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be eating fried chicken and going to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And it was kind of ironic that I was in Nashville, I know, right? where you guys are in the. In Wish I could stop by, but anyway. I know, yeah. Yeah. No, next time, he, next time. He took care of all that. Yeah, and he, he's fantastic. And he, he did an awesome job. But yeah, what what is it like now that you have a, a full-time employee? It is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, like, I feel like I my work-life balance is, like, the best it's been. Oh, like, great. we're the busiest we've been, but, like, I feel like there's a, it, it's really, like, lifted a huge weight. 
to me, the the big difference right now is is that okay, there's too much work coming in for me to do by myself, and so you know, just from a practical standpoint, if we're not unless we're going to turn stuff down, um, I need help, right? But the other thing that's been great is it's allowed me to shift. Where I feel like the last couple of years, I've been really reactive to keeping up with projects that come in, to doing what people ask me to do. Where now I can clear a lot more time in my schedule to be proactive with things, where I can do projects that I'm really interested in, or music experiments, or whatever, of things that we now I can have that to pitch for projects and making music that would like just take too much time otherwise. You know, that might be like a couple, two or three days to to come up with something that I'm really happy with that can be really helpful later on, but that I just wouldn't have the opportunity for if I was just trying to keep up with all the, the client projects coming in. Um, and the other thing that's been great about it is like I work really closely with Ambrose U as well. Like we have a Slack, he's on our Slack. He technically doesn't work for me, but like we, we contract each other. And um, what's great is we also like, now there's a place where we all talk about projects and we talk about what's going on. And I can, if I'm working on something where I usually used to have to go, okay, I need to like clear my head for a second, come back to it, like reevaluate it. I can just go, Hey guys, does this sound okay? They can tell me. And, um, sort of with, with Trevor specifically working for me, I mean, he, he's awesome. He's got like just the absolute best attitude you could ever hope for just like guys smiles all the time <laughs> it's, it's wonderful but also he's a he's a better recording engineer and mixing engineer and mastering engineer than i am oh, that's so great um, his background is actually in nashville so it's awesome i can send him library tracks like dude mix this and i'll know it's going to sound better or i can go ah, i'm not sure about this what do you think and he can like go i ah, do this and then you know so it's you know, on the one sense, it's like, yeah, he's an employee. He's like a junior member of my team. But he also brings skills to the table that are like better than my skills, even though I have more years doing this job, if that makes sense. Like he, he's got some spe- more specialized skills, which is wonderful. What a great feeling. So speaking from personal experience, though, I, I do know that there there can be a little bit of like fear and uncertainty when it comes to hiring employees. I mean, I don't know. Did you did you feel any of those things, and um, how did that kind of all work out when this was happening? It worked out really well because I would have been really scared to just straight hire somebody, um, but he was already freelancing and had a lot of capacity to to work on stuff. But I met him like probably a year before I could actually really hire him for much, and then I was like, I'm really busy. Oh, I got I should call that Trevor guy back, and um, so. I would just I just would hire him for a, pro- a couple projects. We did some like test projects, get him like up and running and stuff. And then I was like, I got a lot of stuff you do. Do you want to just be on like twenty hours a week retainer, thirty hours a week? And then like within like a month or two, I was like, okay, I want you to be on forty hours, <laughs> you know, full time. But at this point, we're trying to figure out if he needs to be a technically like an employee or a contractor. We sent a thing off to the IRS. They help like decide that. But the thing is nice is it's like he's already set up as a freelancer. So like I'm not going to have to lay him off, you know, like that to me would be terrifying of like, because, you know, with animation, you guys have to like really staff up and, you know, where for us, it's, you know, the, the ship is smaller, I guess. And so like we, (laughs) if the ship is sinking or, you know, having issues, like it's a little easier to fix. (laughs) Than like an oil tanker, yep. Uh, if that makes sense, no, definitely. Well, congrats, man. I mean, th- th- that's that's incredible. Well, that's about all the time we have uh, today. But we we end each episode with the same few questions. So the first question is, who is your dream client? 
I think after Nintendo released their whole cardboard thing so for the Switch, cool. it's it's got to be Nintendo at this <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do some work for Nintendo. As soon as you were saying, like, I'm working on something, like, kind of educational for kids, I was like, maybe it's for that. But, yeah, that's incredible. It looks so good. All right, next question. Your favorite animated film? Uh, <laughs> probably Akira. Oh, nice. Next question. What do the people you love think that you do for a living? Oh, that's a good question. When we meet people in Grand Rapids, they like really don't understand it because I don't think that they understand that like you can actually make a living making sound and music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, I think a lot of people that we meet, they think that my wife pays the bills. Nice, nice. Ex- exclusively. <laughs> you just got your kind of little side hobby thing that, you know. I think people understand what I do. It's a little easier with music, I think. And what really helped is that so I got, I got a, a Super Bowl commercial for Airbnb a couple years ago. Yeah. And now, finally, I have something that I can point to <laughs> yeah. of like, oh, did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you see this? That's amazing. Uh, this commercial for Airbnb. <laughs> I did. I made the music for that, and they paid me to for that. <laughs> and they go, oh, like I get it. There's like you make music for things that actually. <laughs> that's incredible. It's helpful when something like carries over to the real world. I didn't know that. That's inc- that's awesome. What a what a huge like career milestone. That must have been like a great day. Were you just like watching the Super Bowl, waiting for the, your your spot to come on? I was playing board games. Are you serious? While while Cat was watching the Super Bowl, <laughs> waiting for it. That's amazing. All right, last question. What animal did you choose for your animalator, and why? Oh, I chose a bat because they're good listeners. Mm, that's the best. Well, Wesley, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Animalators is created by the team at IV, recorded in the Weld Nashville studio, and produced by Chad Michael Snavely. To learn more, visit weld.co and chadmichael.com. To keep up with the work we're doing at IV, visit iv.studio, or follow us on Twitter at Identity Visuals. You can also follow Animalators on Twitter at Animalators to keep up with all of the new episodes, and be sure to check out animalators.com to see every animation from all of our guests. You can find out more about Wes and Sonosanctus at their website, sonosanctus.com, or follow Wes on Twitter at Sonosanctus. Our theme music is composed by Cody Fry. You can check out more of his music at codyfry.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and that helps more people find this show. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure and join us next time for another episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world animation. <laughs> <laughs>